Hello and welcome to the Talkspot. I'm Tim Scott, and today we're going to be talking about some research going on in forensic toxicology, which I've heard quite a bit about, but haven't had a chance to look in in a lot of detail. The use of activity-based assays in the context of new psychoactive substances. And my guest today is Marta van der Putter from Ghent University. She's studying a PhD there and is, along with her colleagues, doing some very interesting work in this space. Marta, welcome. Hi, Tim. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for having me here today on the Talkspots. So why don't we start off, just tell us a bit about your background, how you came to be in forensic toxicology. Well, I started my PhD in September 2019, so one and a half years ago, after having obtained my degree in pharmaceutical sciences with a master's in drug development. And actually, during that time, I did my master's thesis, so as a student in the lab of toxicology of uh, Christoph Stove. And that was kind of my first introduction to the world of forensic toxicology, new psychoactive substances, and it really sparked my interest. So I was actually very lucky that I could start my PhD um, soon after. So here I am. (laughs) And so you are doing work with activity-based assays. A lot of our listeners might not have heard about this before. Tell us, what are activity-based assays? So it's basically, as the name suggests, these assays, they sense biological activity. So rather than screening assays that are structure-based, our assays are activity-based. And this is particularly interesting in the field of new psychoactive substances, as these compounds, they emerge at a very rapid speed, they're structurally highly diverse. So when you use immunoassays or targeted chromatography techniques, then, well, when you don't know what you're looking for, it gets quite hard. So the idea was in the lab to develop a more universal screening approach that would be activity-based rather than structure-based so that we could theoretically detect a whole class of compounds really based on their mechanism of action rather than their structure. So that was the idea behind it. So we started off, and side note, when I'm saying we, um, I mean my former colleagues, because as I started only one and a half years ago, these assays were already in place. It was actually uh, Annelie Scanner who spent her PhD working on these assays. So they started out with uh, detection of synthetic cannabinoids in urine, because, well, in urine, there's less of an issue for sensitivity because the concentrations are a bit higher there. Of course, you have a lot of metabolites in urine. But luckily for synthetic cannabinoids, many of them retain their activity. So for an activity-based assay, urine was still a very good uh, matrix there. And was actually a very successful proof of concept. Um, So from there, they went on to blood, so serum and plasma samples. So these were lower concentrations, so more of a challenge regarding sensitivity. So this required a few adaptations to the assay, but still, um, this was actually very successful. And then we actually, this is where I did my master's thesis. We had a whole project where I wanted to validate um, the applicability of the assays on a very large set of um, serum samples. Um, And also this was very successful. So it was the first real applicability of the assays demonstrated. So you can use them for obviously biological samples, urine and serum you mentioned there. And you can also use them for powders and pure reference materials. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So we do two things actually with those assays. So on the one hand, we do screening. We have an assay that screens for synthetic cannabinoids and also one that screens for um, opioids. 
And then we also do characterization of these new psychoactive substances. So for the characterization, we use reference standard material. So of opioids, uh, but also synthetic cannabinoids and um, also psychedelic new psychoactive substances. This is mainly the work of my colleague, Elina Potti. So we do a bit of both. So the screening is really on the biological samples, of course, and then the characterization is in terms of efficacy, potency, to get an idea about the potential toxicity that these new substances have. I mean, I think this is where it's so fascinating is the fact that they can detect multiple compounds at once, but not just that, the fact they can detect compounds you don't know about, because that is the real problem we have with traditional methods like LCMS, where you can detect a lot of things, but you sort of have to know what you're looking for, or you sort of have to at least have an idea of what you might be looking for. But with these, there can be a completely unheard of compound almost, and you'll detect it. And okay, you don't know what it is necessarily from this assay, but at least you'll get a positive result yes exactly so it is it is a screening assay so we will still need um, bioanalysis to really confirm this but it really helps to further direct bioanalysis to pick out those samples that are suspicious um, and need further investigation so yeah and we also it's not i mean we can't quantify uh, what's in there but we can get an idea about how high the activity is for example we typically run along in an opioid assay two nanograms per ml of fentanyl, and then we get a certain signal for that. And then we can compare this signal, which we get for the fentanyl, to the signal we're getting from the authentic sample. So we can have an idea when we compare those two, is the activity present in the sample? Is it a high opioid activity or is it low? So things like that we can do with the assay. And you mentioned urine and serum. What other kind of matrices can you use this for? Is, is it sort of universal in the number of matrices that you can use it for? What about things like oral fluid, for example? Yeah, we have done, uh, or my colleague Annelise also has done analysis on uh, oral fluids. This was also for synthetic cannabinoids. Um, but this was, I mean, it was more of a challenge because um, it was kind of difficult to extract them from the oral fluids. Um, but in the end, this worked quite well. So we have done like blood, urine, oral fluids. We've also done once, I think, vitreous as a matrix, but it's mainly like the typical matrices you use for screening. So urine, blood samples, things like that. And I think um, from reading one of your papers, the sample preparation seems to be quite simple. It's just like a precipitation of the serum, something like that. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's quite simple. We do like liquid-liquid extractions, things like that, and then just apply an extract to the cells because the assay is cell-based, so it happens inside cells. So it's quite easy indeed. And how long does this test take? I mean, forgive my ignorance here. I'm coming from a completely different side of analytical chemistry. I work with GCs and LCs and things like that. Mm -hmm. I've never done a test like this in my life. So how long does it take from start to finish with this kind of test? So for the opioid and cannabinoids assays, this typically takes, in total, it takes two days because on day one, you have to see the cells. We do this in 96 well plates. Uh, so you have to prepare them. They, then they have to grow overnight. And then on the second day, you can perform the assay. It literally takes like, well, sample prep aside, it takes 15 minutes to get everything on the cells. Like you also have to uh, wash the cells a few times, so a few washing steps. But then in the end, you add the extracts to the cells. And then there's a two-hour readout, which is in a basic luminometer. But actually, for example, for opioids, we know that we'll have the signal or we'll know whether the sample is positive or not after 15, 20 minutes. For cannabinoids, it's more like a more sustained signal, actually. So it might take a little longer. But 
well, we measure for two hours, but we all we know sooner whether the sample is positive or not. Because you see a response quite early in that time. Yes, exactly. So let's go, let's go into that a little bit deeper. How does it actually work? What's the mechanism of action there? Yeah, so the assay actually combines um, the mechanism of receptor activation with um, functional complementation of a split nanoluciferase enzyme. So what we do, we have stably expressed a receptor, for example, the cannabinoid receptor or the mu opioid receptor in these cells. To one side of the receptor, we have fused one subunit of a split nanoluciferase enzyme. Now, the complementing part of this enzyme is fused to an intracellular protein, so it really inside the cell. It's important that the subunits separately, they don't have any activity. So there's no nanoluciferase activity present in the subunits themselves. It's only when they come close together that the activity of the enzyme is restored and that we can generate a signal. And this is what actually happens upon receptor activation. So you have these cells that express the receptor fused to the subunits. And when we apply an extract that contains a drug which will activate that receptor, the receptor gets activated and inside the cell, this intracellular protein will get recruited towards the receptor, which then brings the two subunits into close proximity of one another. And it's at that point that nanoluciferase restores its enzymatic activity. And when we add a substrate, then um, this yields a measurable bioluminescent signal. So it's quite, it's, it's quite elegant, actually. It's quite an easy principle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds... Um... An amazing concept. Whoever came up with this concept to start with, it's a pretty amazing <laughs> concept. How do you decide what is a positive? You know, how different does that response have to be from a blank? Is that just a judgment call or is there some kind of criteria there? Well, at this point, we do all the scoring, so positive, negative scoring uh, manually. So indeed, we run blanks and then we look at the difference between the blank signal and uh, signal generated from, from the sample. It's, it's often clearly positive. We have a few times that it's like not extremely active, but okay, still different from blank. But my colleague, Lisa, Lisa Janssen, she is now also working on a system to get this scoring uh, computer-based actually, so that we don't have to do it manual anymore, but that there's some kind of algorithm behind it that can automatically score the samples positive or negative. So that would make it easier for us <laughs> since, well, if you have to score large batches yeah. of samples, it takes a while. But it's usually quite clear if it's uh, if it's positive. So with, uh, say, the synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonist assays, there obviously are compounds that are endogenous, which interact with the endocannabinoid system in a human. So yeah. can those um, compounds affect the assay in any way, or are they insignificant compared to the activity of a synthetic cannabinoid? Yeah, exactly. So we would need very, very high concentrations, I think, of those endocannabinoids to pick them up in the assays. And also, by now, we've run so many assays on the cannabinoids uh, assay that if there would be some influence or if we would detect them, we would have seen it by now, and, and we don't. Of course, THC in, in natural cannabis does also activate the cannabinoid receptor. And this we do see also if it's present in high concentrations, we do see receptor activation in our assays, which, which makes sense. But again, these are quite high concentrations. And also when we look at the screening assay in practice, if you'd really apply them in practice for screening, you would probably combine them with a traditional immunoassay or whatever to um, detect those natural cannabis components. So we don't really see this as an issue in our assays. Sure. And THC is, relatively speaking, a weak agonist compared exactly. to some of these synthetic cannabinoids, which some of them are very, very strong agonists. Mm -hmm. One big advantage that I see with these tests over traditional tests is that 
the pharmacological significance of whatever's there is directly proportional to the response, whereas that's definitely not the case on an LCMS or a GCMS. You might have a very potent drug, but it might not respond very well in your just by the nature of the molecule, it might not respond very well by mass spectrometry, for example. But these tests, they are proportional to the pharmacological significance. That's a really uh, interesting thing about them. Yeah, exactly. Now, of course, you have to keep in mind that you cannot directly translate the results we get in vitro to what you would see in vivo. There are many factors like tolerance is a big one or formation of active metabolites, blood-brain barrier penetration, things like that, that you do have to keep in mind. We do indeed know that our assays have some sort of predictive um, value, but of course it's difficult to directly translate in vitro results to the in vivo situation in humans. Um, but we have seen that a compound that is highly active in our assays is generally also an important one or a dangerous one in vivo. So we do have some predictive value there. Yeah, but obviously it is a much more complex situation in a, a living human being as opposed to just in an assay. Indeed. So... You've done work, as you mentioned, with synthetic cannabinoids. Tell us a bit about the work you did there with these assays. Yeah, so this was actually all during my uh, my master's thesis. This was in 2018. So there we had a batch of 471 serum samples from patients that had presented at an emergency department in a hospital in central London. Um, uh, well, they had taken all kinds of drugs, but including synthetic cannabinoids. And so the idea there was that we would validate the applicability of our cannabinoid screening assay by using it on this large batch of, of samples. Um, we compared the results that we had with our assays to the ones that were generated through LCHRMS analysis. This was done by colleagues in London, and then also to the drugs that were reported by the patients themselves. The results were very good. We had a sensitivity of 100% and the specificity wow. was like close to 98%. So really very good. It was interesting that we had two false positive cases where our bioassay detected a clear positive signal, but this was not confirmed by bioanalysis. But interestingly, the patients did report SCRA intake. So there, it's a bit of a difficult mm. situation because we clearly see with our bioassay or our bioassay supports what the patient is saying, but if bioanalysis cannot confirm it, then it's still a false positive. Yes. So in that but case- prob it's, Probably it's, not a false positive though. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so in that case, it's, it's possible that um, this might be a very new scrub um, that was not yet included in the mass spectral library, something like that. Or alternatively, it's possible that, for example, the bioactivity that we saw was a result of very low concentrations of different scrubs that together generated enough bioactivity to give a signal in our assays, but the concentrations were too low to be picked up bioanalytically. So we don't know what it is, but those are always interesting cases. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. It's, it's always fun trying to find something that's there. And if you know it's there, if you've had a presumptive test and you think it's definitely there, uh, it's fun to, to go looking for it. And so you've gone on from working with synthetic cannabinoids to now working with opioids. So tell us a bit about what you're doing there. Yeah, so um, indeed my PhD up until now has focused entirely on opioids. 
actually mainly on non-fentanyl opioids. So there has been kind of like a general shift there in the field of, of illicit opioid use from fentanyl and fentanyl analogs now more and more towards these kind of obscure non-fentanyl opioids. So we try to monitor closely which ones are emerging. Uh, we do this like via the big organizations like EMCDBA, UNODC and everything. We try to monitor what is coming up. We also enjoy the occasional late night scroll through like Reddit's fora, drug user fora, where the substances are discussed, just to see what's out there, you know. Sure, um, yeah, that's, that always seems to be a, that seems to be a rich source of information for exactly. NPS in general. <laughs> exactly. So we keep an eye out for that, and then we try to get our hands on the reference standards, and then we characterize it using our opioids assay. So this is again in terms of uh, potency, efficacy. Um, and this helps us to get an idea again about the potential toxicity of these compounds. We know definitely for opioids that there is definitely a predictive value in our assays there. Uh, we saw this, for example, now recently on a panel of nitazine analogs that we studied. So these are two benzyl, benzimidazole opioids that have been studied actually in the 1950s and 1960s for their potential as analgesics, but they were never marketed. And we are now seeing more and more of these nitazine analogs appearing on the market. Isotonitazine was actually the first one. I know you guys did an episode of that one as well. We did, yeah. It's been fascinating to see all of these new ones coming out. It feels like it wasn't very long ago that it was fentanyl analogs that were the new new kid on the block, but it's changed so quickly in the last it's few really, years. It's, it's, it's really difficult to keep up, <laughs> but it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to predict the trends, but it's it's interesting to see how it develops. And um, yeah, so we try to get our hands on, on these reference standards and try to get an idea about what this would do um, in our assays and then also in vivo. By doing that, we can also, or we try to, inform and try to maybe direct legislations. For example, if we see that an opioid in our assay is super potent and highly efficacious, then we know that it's that it's likely a very dangerous one. So this could help prioritize or direct legislations towards embedding this opioids into the legislations. What is the legislation like in Belgium? In terms of analogs, are they heavily restrictive of analogs or is it uh, a bit more targeted towards specific compounds? No, so we used to have like more targeted legislation, nominative legislation, but then in 2017, this was combined with uh, a more generic legislation where you indeed have some scaffolds and then the different substitutions that would also fall under this um, legislation. So, uh, but it's not like in the UK, for example, you have the Psychoactive Substances Act where they really talk about psychoactivity um, of these compounds. That's not the case. It's really the, the generic legislation that we have in place in Belgium. So you mentioned some of these groups that you get information from, the UNODC. I know you have quite a well-developed early warning system over there as well. Do you focus more on the ones that are being found locally in Belgium or around surrounding countries, or is it more just whatever's being seen anywhere around the world you'll pick up and try? Um, we try to look like worldwide because, I mean, we do have NPS in Belgium, of course, but not to that extent as in other places of the world. Um, so we do try to monitor what's going on worldwide. Uh, for example, we did have a very interesting case of morphine. It was last year around this time, I think, which was a very new opioid, hadn't been described yet. And we actually had in the Ghent University Hospital, a patient that came in and was looking for help for his opioid addiction. And he literally gave us his morphine sample so that we could do the analysis on that. That's so that was helpful. convenient. Yes. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, it depends a bit. We try to look worldwide. We also work um, together with um, the people at MPS Discovery in the US. So mm-hmm. from, so like Alex Kotelski, and they also have, well, they have access to a massive amount of data, uh, which we also like to follow, follow up closely. So yeah, it's a bit worldwide. Are you doing um, like large scale screening for any particular labs or organizations, or is it more just a one-off when you find something you'll, you'll try and target it? Yeah, no, it's uh, we don't really do like very large projects for specific um, organizations or anything. Like we do have an ongoing collaboration with many different research groups, for example, also the people in London, who the, the people that were also involved in the projects uh, with a large batch of uh, scra samples. And we have gotten, for example, from them, a new batch of, again, I don't know how many, I think even more than 500 samples. Uh, on which Lisa, my colleague, is now working to um, generate the computer-based scoring system. So we do receive a lot of samples, but it's it's yeah for research purposes. It's not like a systematic screening that we perform. Is the test amenable to that kind of screening? You know, like the kind of screening that goes on in a forensic toxicology lab where you you might get thousands of samples. Is the test amenable to that level of screening? Uh. Well, I think it could be in the in the future. Maybe we're, we're, we might not entirely be there yet. I mean, we work in a 96 well format now. So that means, well, we run all samples in duplicates. So around 40 samples per plate. We read now for two hours. Well, this can be less, but, um, but okay. So I think there are definitely possibilities to further scale this up, um, perhaps work in larger well plates with the ultimate uh, scoring system that would also help to scale this up. So there's definitely potential there. Um, but at this point, it's just us in the lab. <laughs> yeah, sure. So of these opioids that you're looking for and you get them into test, what proportion of them have significant activity? I imagine there's some that don't have a lot of activity that you find out about. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, we've actually, well, when, when I look at the non-fentanyl opioids that I've tested, there are some of them that are, I mean, I think more than 10 times less potent than, than say, fentanyl. And we still do see them circulating, like on drug user forum. I'm thinking about the um, AP analogs, AP238, 237, that are now circulating. Actually, in our assays, they are not super potent. So, yeah, we do see those and they still circulate. Um, we also, for example, we recently did some work on a compound that was actually a byproduct from fentanyl synthesis. This was phenethyl for AMPP. And we honestly didn't know where this came from. Did it have any activity? Is it important to know about this compound? So, and there we saw that it was barely active in our assays. So then we could say like, okay, this is probably an irrelevant bystander just that appears in fentanyl synthesis. Um, so it's it's a bit of both, I guess. For example, the work on the night disease that we did there, we saw some very potent um, analogs as compared to some other non-fentanyl opioids. So it's a bit of both. really. I guess our definition of potency has changed a lot over the last few years as well. I mean, morphine yeah. is still a, a quite effective drug if you take it in the right doses. Um, but we're just so used to talking about things that are more potent than fentanyl now. So anything yeah, else exactly. just seems like it's a placebo or something. Yeah, it's true because I think just off the top of my head, I think those AP analogs that I mentioned are probably more comparable to morphine. But if you compare this to fentanyl, it's it's just a different range of, of compounds. So, of course, they are still highly active of compounds and 
depends, of course, on the dose you take, on the purity of the sample. So many things to take into consideration there. And of course, a lot of these things metabolize into things that might also be active as well. So is that a problem for the assay or maybe that's a an enhancement of the assay? It might prolong the detection time for some of these things if you get active metabolites there. Yeah, exactly. Um, for screening, we'll definitely, well, if there are active metabolites that have been formed, this will just add up to the bioactivity that we detect. So in terms of screening, this is definitely um, an advantage. And for example, for the characterization, there, of course, we use, we use reference standards. So we just look at the pure substance. In terms of characterization, we've also encountered, encountered some interesting profiles. For example, we saw that one metabolite of isotonitazine and, and the cetyl metabolites was actually more active in our assays than isotonitazine itself. So that's very interesting because that likely has consequences in vivo as this metabolite is also formed in vivo. So we can also kind of inform um, those studies sometimes as well. Yeah, I guess we've got to be prepared for that. It wouldn't be the first time that an opioid has a metabolite which is more active than the parent compound itself. Yeah, exactly. And so one issue that could potentially be a problem with these opioid assays is if there's an opioid antagonist present as well, naloxone is very widely available now and actually it's preferentially used if someone's having an overdose to an opioid. And so a lot of these samples that come into a hospital, for example, might have this. And your colleagues came up with a very interesting way of getting around this problem. Tell us about that. Yeah, so indeed we saw that for the opioid assay, well, if daloxone was present, we wouldn't get a signal, which makes sense because then there's no receptor activation left. So this was logical, um, but of course, in terms of screening, this was a bit annoying, but my colleagues did come up with a very elegant solution to this. So what we do is we add a small amount of agonists after like 30 minutes or something, and then we can see if the signal doesn't go up at that point, then we know that there's naloxone present in the sample. So we by, by adding this small amount of agonists, we can see how the profile changes, and this tells us something about is there naloxone present. So you always have to keep into account the broader context of the case um, that you have before you. So is that something that you do routinely now if you're doing biological samples? Um, yes, uh, we don't. We actually don't have that many biological samples for um, opioids. And the ones that we did have, we knew what was in there. So we know that when we know that there's no naloxone in there, then we don't do the, the, the modified protocol, so to say. Uh, but if we do blind screening of opioids in samples that we really don't know anything about, then we did use a modified protocol with the small amount of agonist added. Yeah. And predicting trends in this area is probably fraught with danger. But what are your thoughts on that? Where do you see the trends going now? Yeah, it's indeed difficult to predict. I mean, uh, we've had this general shift towards non-fentanyl opioids. And I mean, there are so many compounds out there that could be synthesized and that have actually also, in many cases, already been described earlier, like in those very early studies when they were looking for new opioid analgesics. Those compounds were often never marketed. And we know that drug manufacturers are really actively seeking those patents and those early research publications to look for new compounds. So there's definitely a massive amount of compounds that could still yeah, emerge on the market. So it's difficult, it's difficult to say really. I know that in the US, for example, they're also seeing some fentanyl analogs reappearing or appearing again. So yeah, that's that's interesting because we've had to drop most likely due to an increasing amount of legislation targeting these fentanyl analogs. But now apparently some fentanyl analogs are reappearing. 
So yeah, we'll have to see where it goes, I guess. So what other classes of drugs can these assays be applied to or have they been applied to apart from the two that we've talked about? Yeah, so we've also looked at, or we are, we are also looking at psychedelic psychoactive substances. So my colleague Elena is doing this, um, but there, again, we tried screening and characterization. But for the screening, this was this was a problem because in in almost all, I think all um, authentic samples, you also had serotonin present, and serotonin, uh. of course, acts on the same receptor as the psychedelic psychoactive substances for most of them. So this was a problem that we haven't found a solution to um, because you always saw activation in all of these authentic samples, even when there weren't any drugs of abuse present. So for the psychedelics, we only use the assays for characterization of uh, new compounds. So I imagine in the future, I mean, it sounds like this takes quite a bit of expertise to prepare these assays and run these assays. Perhaps it's not something that all forensic toxicology labs will get into in the future, but it might be something where you know, you have a center of excellence that people send their samples to, to have this kind of preliminary screening. Yeah, exactly. We do see it like more in centralized settings, uh, large laboratories. In fact, it's performing the assays is, is not difficult. I mean, you only need so, some basic skills and a basic cell culture facility, and then quite a basic luminometer would do. So it's not difficult, but indeed, it's maybe not something that is readily in place in every forensic toxicology lab. Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing what happens in this space in the future. A, a lot more research uh, to be done, obviously, but it's uh, excellent work that you guys are doing there and a lot of collaboration with other organizations and other groups as well, which is wonderful to see. I always like to see scientists collaborating with each other. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. It's, uh, it's indeed good to collaborate with people from all over the world. We learn so much from them. So, yeah, it's definitely uh, something we enjoy too. And what about for yourself? You started your PhD. 18 months ago, something like that. And then COVID hit immediately. So what's it been like doing a PhD in the COVID era? Well, like you said, I mean, most of my PhD has been in the COVID era. So I guess I hate to saying that it's like our new normal and everything, but it is normal <laughs> to me, I guess, doing mm. a PhD in the COVID era. I do think that we were lucky because for our research itself, well, where you had to do experimental work, you had to be in the lab and that was still allowed. Of course, with measures of social distancing and everything. Um, but so I don't think or I don't feel like it impacted our practical work that much. We do try to stay at home or no, we just stay at home when we just have to read or write or anything that we can do from home, we do from home. Um, but our research hasn't been impacted that much. Apart from, of course, the social aspect, we haven't had our yearly team building yet, which is a pity. So <laughs> we're really looking forward to that. Um, so hopefully somewhere in the summer, we might be able to do that, but uh, we'll have to see, of course. And obviously conferences have been cancelled and things like that. So that's a shame because yeah, exactly. Uh, it's always good to hear PhD students talking about what they're doing. They're doing a lot of the cutting edge research. So, And I think you've been to a TF conference before, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I was lucky to have been able to attend uh, the one that was in Ghent. That was actually the year that I had performed my master's thesis in the lab. So I attended that one and then also the one right before starting my PhD actually in Birmingham. And yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it so much. I mean, for me, I wasn't even involved in the toxicology field the first time I attended the conference. And for me, it's really helped to like open up my world to see what's happening, what's all the cutting edge, re cutting edge research, 
to kind of meet the faces and the voices behind the papers that you read. Um, I think it's really, it has <laughs> have been wonderful experiences really. So I do hope that we will be able to attend some conferences again soon. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. And it is good to, you know, you get focused on the work that you're doing uh, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. It's good to just lift your eyes up occasionally and and see what everyone else is doing. And you, yeah, never, exactly. you, never, you never know what uh, collaborations or ideas you might have based on someone else's work. Yeah, indeed. And it's so much easier when you've actually met the persons that you might want to collaborate with. It's much easier when you've met them if you want to like send them an email or anything where you know who this person is, where you can put a face on it. It's much easier, I think, to, to contact them afterwards. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So would you recommend to others to do a PhD in forensic toxicology, those master's students out there who are thinking about it? <laughs> well, of course, I mean, I'm very passionate about what I do, so so I love it. Um, of course, you have to see for yourself <laughs> if you do. But I guess I mean I'm also lucky to have oh yeah, to be part of a fantastic team. I mean we have I have wonderful colleagues. I have a promoter whose door is always open. So I do wish the same to every other PhD student out there. Um, and I guess if you're passionate about what you do, then go for it. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us, Marta. Thank you very much for having me. And I'll put links to a couple of Marta's papers in the show notes about activity-based assays. And if you're a PhD student or any scientist under 40 and are planning to head to TAFT in Cape Town, consider submitting an application for the Young Scientist Award. Last year, the best oral was won by Australia's own Jingya Yan, and there's a really high calibre of winners going back through the conferences. You can find out all the details at the TAFT website. Don't forget you can contact us at toxpod at tf.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting, taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.